You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you brought us together again on our journey uh, to be with you forever and that we can hear the word, we can exist in the fellowship of the saints, this side of glory, we can explore in peace uh, the meaning of your words, uh, that you can prepare our hearts for whatever comes to us this week, this evening, and know that our rest is in you, our security is in you, our hope is in the resurrection of your Son, and he will be with us until the end. Thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, good, good to see you, and I hope I can try to make sense of something out of the, in the second part of this series. So if you missed the first part, you're out of luck. And I'm, no, I'm kidding, you're not. I'm going to try to do some review just to make sense of, of where we've been with these questions. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to develop through the course of this to, to leave time for question and answers, but also maybe some reflection of why this topic is important. What is nature and what is uh, human nature itself? And I'll just begin, I'll just preface it as I did last week. I think it is one of the most pressing issues of our time. Uh, if you've heard me teach in any of the historical survey courses that I've, that I've done, uh, you know, you can isolate in church history crises and concerns uh, that are a reflection of the period. The Arian controversy of the early church, uh, the problem of faith and reason in the medieval church, the nature of the sacraments, etc. What is justification by faith? Each historical time period has an ongoing sort of isolated big question. And I think this might be ours. <coughs> I could be wrong, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe I'm not. That the, one of the pervading and, and, and intimidating questions of our time period is, and this sounds weird to say, but what is a person? What is a person? Um, it's an old question, a very old question. These questions are very old. But we're living in a new framework in history and a new framework in the cultural dialogue and the political dialogue that is going to force, I think, us, our children, our grandchildren, to deal with this in new ways. But having to deal with it in new ways doesn't mean that we're alone. And I think as Christians, this is great hope uh, that we have... A resource. We have revelation. We have promises. We have faith. And that these things the, the, that are given to us uh, can equip us to address these questions. So we don't have to go in uh, afraid to something like what is a person or what is human nature. I think also that when we start thinking about it this way, this big picture sort of question maybe of the 21st century, you realize how many sub-questions show up, <laughs> right? Uh, now, I'm, I, I, just for example, what is a man? What is a woman? We might put those under the sub-question of what is a person, right? What's the difference between the age of consent and not the age of consent? 
What is a child? Where does childhood end? Etc. We can keep going through all of these questions and they have deep implications for our, not just our culture and our religious impulses, but our law, our legal system, and how law is made. Here we're concerned with the theological question. Here at church we're concerned with the Bible. And we're concerned with what Scripture says. So, in a, the best I can do, I, I'm going to try to give us a, a modicum of exegesis. It certainly, don't, I don't have time to, you know, tear apart the Book of Romans like Gill's doing, or um, in another class this year. Um, and, and that that takes you know a little more time than we have here. But I want to offer some exegesis. But I also want to offer some historical struggles with these questions of how are we bound by nature and can we overcome or free ourselves from nature? It is a haunting old question. Go back to the ancient world and people were asking this. What is it? What does it mean to be a person? And can I overcome it? Can I actually stop being a person? Can I be something else? Philosophers put it in the phrase of, being and becoming. I am something, but I'm always becoming something else. What does this mean? Well, Christianity helps us get at this. The Bible helps us get at this in a very special way. And the first place we have to begin is nature is not bad. Personhood is not bad. Existence is not bad. The natural order is not bad. Your body is not bad. Creation is good. You are created good. God declares in Genesis 1.31 that he sees all that he's made and declares it very good. Um, it's hard to argue with that. And I, now, don't I'm sure you can, but let's not. Let's take it on, as an article of faith that this is exactly what God said and what he meant. That the act of creation, not getting into the, 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 the mystery of creation here, okay? Because there is, all right? Not trying to get into the science versus creation. Not here. As an article of faith, just like I accept the resurrection of Christ, I accept that God created and he said it was good. God, in making creation good, he granted a unique relationship with the natural order by virtue of creation in his image. Specifically, he created, he granted humanity a gift. The Imago Dei. Much ink has been spilt over this question for centuries. You know, what is this? Uh, it's the soul. It's the rational nature and the soul of a person. That, that's where theology has landed in, in its orthodox form. We are separated from other things in nature like plants and minerals and animals. Thankfully, no one's raising their hand and arguing yet. <laughs> Wait a minute. In, in the sense that we have a soul, we have a rational nature. We are able to think and use language. Nature, when we look at Genesis 1, is a gift of, for human cultivation and usage through this image, through this gift. Let us make mankind in our likeness. This question of dominion and rule, the question of being made in the image of God, carries with it the language of blessedness. God blessed them. Blessedness. It is a gift to you. 
the created order, nature, your nature, is part of a condition of blessedness. And then the blessedness comes with opportunity, fruitfulness, multiplying, reproduction, sub sub subduing, etc. Okay, this is ground we covered last week. Other points we have to consider when we talk about nature and creation. One of the first and most important premises of Christianity is that creation is not the same as God, and God is not the same thing as nature. There is a creator. There is a distinction. Human activity within this is under a condition of blessedness. All right? It's under a condition of God's approval. This human freedom to rule and subdue, to use creation, to improve our lives, to make things better for us, uh, using our minds and the natural order, is a gift. It's not something that we can get outside of or above. And these have been the source of much error and heresy and, and mistakes in the history of Christian thought, or the history of human thought, is that somehow either God is embedded in nature such that we can make his, find his image in the natural order uh, as an idol or as a, a force in nature. Or God is so far outside of nature, we're just left on our own as a kind of uh, watchmaker. He, he, wind, he wound us up and now we're, we're on our own. Or that somehow we have the ability and the human desire is to separate ourselves, to free ourselves from creation, overcome it, subdue it in, 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 a, in a way that makes it uh, our, ours to control. This is the, you ever read the book Frankenstein? Uh, or, well, seen the movie, it's a little different. But you get the point. That's not what we're taught. We are taught that our condition of createdness and blessedness means that we work within a closed system that God has provided for us. All right, and the fundamental takeaway here is it is good. It was pronounced good. Then we also know that we're not left here. We're not, as believer, this is sort of, you know, Bible 101, Christianity 101, but why go to 102 when 101 is hard enough? Um, the, the, um, the third consideration beyond the goodness and the givenness of the created order, the natural order, is sin. Sin, a, a very tough word, a very tough concept. Um, the sin affects this created order. Sin, this violation of the state of blessedness, this violation of the will to become like God in the first humans, affects the natural, biological, physical, and material world. But it also affects and kind of at the center of the entirety of our faith, our, our nature, our moral condition, who, who, what we mean by personhood. Sin changes how we can talk about personhood. It changes how we approach the question of personhood, and it raises multiple issues. 
Christianity then, the Bible, Scripture, teaches us that human nature is created good, but has been corrupted. So the questions then, as we inch toward the his, biblical historical study of this, is what does this mean for our will? Desires. That the heart. What moderns call psychology. What does it mean for that? That irrational part of our nature of desire and power and fear. What does it mean for our perception and our reason? How our senses work in the world and how our, ra- our reason works in the wor- world. And then what does this mean especially about our judgment about right and wrong? If we're created good, we are, and then we have this problem called sin, it affects us at multiple levels, which means our understanding of personhood is affected at multiple levels. How we think, how we perceive, how we desire, what we believe to be good in light, in, in, in under the condition of sin, what is right and what is wrong. So last week, to tease this even further, we talked a bit about Romans 1, and we turned to Paul. And we turn to the question of how Paul begins to answer this, because Paul assures readers, as he makes a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous in Romans 1, that even in a state of godlessness or a state of separation from grace, there is a knowledge of God. There is an awareness of divinity. This is a hard saying. It is plain to us, apart from grace, that God exists. That there is a moral order. That there is a a nature that was good. Paul encourages us, well, and discourages those outside of faith to understand this. That is a type of condemnation that comes from this. There's a quality of God's power and divinity in the natural order. Rational creation can see this, can know it, but it doesn't mean they understand it or we understand it. Further, in Romans 8, we hear that the creation is eagerly awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God. I I encourage you to listen to Gil's teaching on this. It it is really good, but just in, in miniature here, Um, It's the idea that creation itself has been subjected in hope for deliverance. So whatever we mean by nature and uh, through the, the lens of creation, it is undergoing the process of birth. Birth is painful, I've been told, and it, it looked like it, and, and then it's painful, and then, but what does it deliver? It delivers a baby. It delivers joy. It delivers life. It delivers something amazing. And that's sort of the metaphor I think Paul's working out with us here, that we having the first fruits of the resurrection, of the Spirit that's been given to us through the resurrection, we ourselves can groan in this expectation and this hope for the redemption of our body, this relationship between the sort of eschatological realization of a hope for a created order that is under a kind of futility at the moment. Okay. Um... 
So, and then I, I also will quickly point out as a, just a point of uh, contact here where Paul actually references the natural man. He uses this phrase, the sukikos de anthropos, the, the natural man. Uh, he, but it's a contrast, if you notice, it's not a contrast of being. It's not two orders of personhood. When he talks about the natural man, he's talking about those who, un, who, who have an order of wisdom that is not of nature, of the natural order. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God. So Paul himself works with a contrast in his own theological explanation of nature and grace. Something is different from the natural man. It's divinely given. Okay, so with that in mind, let me try to press into some other considerations here. The church inherits this. It inherits this, well, it inherits the scripture and it inherits the burden of interpreting it with the promise of the Spirit. So in church history, this has been sort of three big issues that have repeated. Three big questions that have come up. Does grace, when God gives us grace, this contrast Paul is saying in, in wisdom and the order of, of, of salvific eschatology, when God gives us that grace, does it perfect what's already there inside of us? Does it renew by giving us something that we don't already have, that we can't do by nature? Or does it completely obliterate human nature? I'll, I'll, I'll try to tease these out a bit. In other words, for that last one, does grace make us something other than human? Do we transcend our humanness? and our naturalness, because we have grace. Okay. Related, so, so just keeping those in mind, we'll try to revisit them here, how it's been answered in history and in, in Scripture. Related to this, related to these three questions, are kind of answers that have been given in different periods of time by different thinkers. And there have been three primary ways this idea of what's natural in us and what a person is and what, what personhood is by nature and what it is by redemption or what it is by grace. There have been three ways of answering this. One, one school of thought says that grace renews and reorients fallen sinful human nature through salvation. It renews and reorients. Reason... Reason's part of that blessedness. It's part of what we've inherited through, through the gift of creation, that what makes us different from other aspects of the natural order. Reason can know the good, Romans 1. The natural man can know the good, or woman can know the good, but the will fails to aspire to it. Grace in this model is transformative. Second model, second approach through history. Grace perfects and completes what is good and capable of virtue within created human nature. In other words, this school of thought says 
there's something that retains even in the fall that is still good that God can work with. You bring something to the table. Reason can know the good, aspire to the good, and grace will then perfect where reason and the will fail us. Now we'll see in a moment, this has been a dominant mode of thought in, in the Catholic faith and the sacramental order of the Catholic faith, but there are other aspects of this teaching as well. And finally, the answer is no, no, grace obliterates our nature. Reason is irrelevant to the good and the will. All truth is grace. Nature is bad. Grace good. Pietism, right? Uh, there, this is a, a, an approach to Christianity that says um, it, it, that the body and the, and the physicality and the materiality is all going to be overcome by grace. Okay? Um, it, it has been a subject of much error in church history because of its failure to negotiate the goodness of creation. With me so far? Are we Okay. All right, so the three questions and three general answers to this problem of, of nature and grace. Let's continue and then, again, try to get to a point where we can maybe have some dialogue. In church history, there is, uh, to, to make it very simple, I, and I actually think it is simple, there's one figure who articulates the problem of nature and grace better than anyone else who, who frames the problem in such a way that I think all subsequent church history has had to uh, relate to it in one way or the other, even to this day. And this is a figure named uh, Pelagius. Okay, Pelagius. We don't know much about Pelagius. He was a Brit. Don't think he was a priest. We're not sure. Don't think he was. He ends up coming to Rome around the year 380. Everyone remembers that year. He comes to Rome around the year 380. And uh, he, he, he begins teaching. I'll go over the teaching in just a moment, but just in terms of biography. Um, he begins teaching a, a, a doctrine of nature and grace that comes into collision eventually with St. Augustine. And, but Pelagius' teaching sets a tone. And Pelagianism... Anytime we get an ism attached, you know, you got to do some more investigating. Because, all right, okay, Pelagianism continues, all right? What does Pelagius teach? Well, he taught that Adam's sin or the fall did not affect human posterity. It was an individuated act in history. Original sin is not inherited in the human condition. And there's no such thing as a sin nature or constitutional depravity. <laughs> you might be thinking, well, um, how is this? Okay, this affected the Christian church. <laughs> it affected a lot of areas of the Christian church. And if I whisper gently, it still does. Now, the, what continuing uh, with, with Pelagius, just to try to understand him further, he would argue we're so socialized into sin or conditioned into sin. We don't carry it by any kind of original connection to the fall. Uh, I think we could add today in our language, we, there's a psychology to sin as well as a sociology to it. Sin is real, but sinlessness is possible 
through freely chosen actions. We can choose. We're always in that position of the neutral actor. Am I going to be good or am I going to be bad? Okay. Grace is primarily something external. He has a doctrine of grace. This is what makes it so appealing. But it's primarily something external to us. It is an aid or an example or an exhortation given by God to encourage us to pursue purity, to be ethical, to be good people. So he rejects any notion of the inward empowerment of the soul or the will. Okay? All right. Interesting. Right? Augustine is the principal figure from church history who answers him. He, Pelagius ends up fleeing to Carthage. Well, that put him in Augustine's backyard, right about the time Rome was collapsing, in, in the north at least, sort of collapsing. And uh, it puts him in Augustine's backyard, which I would not want to be in Augustine's backyard if I were Pelagius. But that's where he ends up. And Augustine begins to write some tracts against him. He eventually has to leave Carthage. He ends up in Palestine for a while where... He's finally condemned, just to let you know, to, to, for the punchline. And he's exiled into Egypt, and we really don't know what happened to him. And yet, here we are in 2023 talking about him. Um, for Augustine, human nature retains the goodness of creation. This is central to him trying to recover orthodoxy from heretical teaching. Creation is not bad. The body is not bad. He spent his entire young life trying to figure this out. But human beings are cut off from God through sin, with the result that everything good in our created nature is to one degree or another perverted and abused. Even if we don't like the language, that, that, that harshness of perverted or abused, uh, there, there's power to it because to one degree or to another, that's, that's the qualifier. You know, say, wow, I... I'm not an evil dictator killing you. Well, you know, you're not. That, that's, that'd be a bad degree. Um, but, but to one degree or another, what we, what we have by creation, I'm sorry, by the, in our nature through the fall, uh, is perverted or abused. Sinfulness is a universal spiritual condition, not a voluntary choice that can be mitigated or reversed by our will. No amount of moral training can deliver a person from inherited sinfulness, only spiritual death and resurrection to a new life in Christ. So, in sum, that is Augustine's retort to Pelagius. And with Pelagius and that retort, you get, arguably, the two polarities of thinking on nature and grace that will dominate church history to this day. It is the framework in which we live, historical, theologically. Okay? In, one of, in, in writing his retort to Pelagius, uh, he appeals to Romans chapter 5. Um, if I could just read, uh, well, of course I can, it's a church. Let's read from Romans chapter 5, okay? Uh, starting with verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if, ma- if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Augustine takes Romans 5 as his launching point and does a much more thorough job than I'm doing here explaining what this means and why Pelagius is wrong. Second figure in church history that continues on this sort of spectrum of thought, Thomas Aquinas. We don't talk a lot about Thomas Aquinas in our Anglican Protestant world. Some, some, some do, and we're familiar. Brilliant, brilliant man, uh, and, and a faithful man, uh, just a, a giant like, like Augustine. But Aquinas introduces, he, his problem was different. But it had echoes of Pelagianism in it. The problem Aquinas was facing in the 13th century was a long struggle that was unfolding between how natural reason can get us to know God versus what grace does in that process. That's 10 seconds on what you could spend a lifetime trying to unpack. But that, that was the problem. And Aquinas had, the church was close to dividing over this in the schools of Paris and such. Aquinas applied himself to this and a quote from the Summa sin cannot entirely take away from man the fact that he is a rational being for then he would no longer be, be capable of sin he'd be an animal therefore it is not possible for this good of nature to be destroyed entirely in this model and I want to be clear uh, Aquinas and his followers, who do a lot with this idea, this is more along the lines of grace perfecting nature just as the resurrection perfects the body. It's bringing about what's there into its completion. Reason can show us some truths about God, but not all of them. And we have to be very careful here because I do think that uh, the way, I think Aquinas. As somebody in the Protestant tradition, I want to, you got to kind of work at it, give him a fair shake. What is he really saying here? He does say reason cannot save us. <laughs> we have to have grace. We have to have revelation. But we can show many things revealed to us are in accordance with reason. Where I, where I think, of course, this continues through history into a collision course with what becomes the Reformation is... Uh, for, for Aquinas and, and following, this, this grace is mediated through the sacramental system of the church. So that what is lacking in nature is restored through the sacraments. This is where the reformers are going to push back. But, even the reformers, oh yes, even Luther had something to say about reason. He had something to say about a lot of things. <laughs> and I, and, and I, Luther, uh, you, you would think, okay, well, what in the world, yeah, down the road, what would Luther have to say about the problem of nature and grace? He's grace, 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 right? Well, of course he is. But he's an Augustinian. He was an Augustinian monk. He's a very educated man. 
very educated people tend to use reason. He's not a fideist. He's not denying human nature. But what he says is reason is good and useful in worldly matters, but, quote, must hold still with regard to heavenly matters. I actually have this quote from a sermon he preached in 1531. He says, In external and worldly matters, let reason be the judge, for there you can calculate and figure out that a cow is bigger than a calf, that three eels are longer than one eel, that a golden, I don't know what that is, is worth more than a groschen, that a hundred goldens, I still don't know what they are, are worth more than ten goldens, and that it's better to place a roof under a, over a house than under it. This is Luther's take on reason. It's great, <laughs> right? And he says, stay with that. Stay in your lane, reason. <laughs> Prove yourself a master in that field. How to bridle horses. God has endowed you with reason to show you how to milk a cow. There you demonstrate smartness. There be a master and a net fellow and utilize your skill. But in heavenly matters and in matters of faith, when a question of salvation is involved, bid reason observe silence and hold still. So it's a carry. It's an, we, we, would, we would be wrong to characterize Luther as, uh, as somebody who sees nature as destroyed by grace. He does not. But he does articulate in that good German fashion, it belongs there. This is something else. Okay? This is supernatural. John Calvin. John Calvin carries this idea further when he talks about an idea called the sensus divinitatis. That there exists in the human mind some sense of divinity in our nature that we, we hold beyond dispute. It prevents us from pretending ignorance. We are endowed with some, endued with some idea of a Godhead. We don't learn this at school, he says, but it's part of our nature from the womb. It's an echo of Paul's teaching, clearly. It's an echo of what we've seen in Augustine and Aquinas and Luther as well. Let me see. Oops, I didn't mean to go to that yet. Every human being, according to Calvin, is born with a knowledge that God exists and that we are accountable. But sin, having corrupted the human mind, has distorted the census divinitatis. And men and women suppress the truth of God and replace him with idols fashioned by their mind. Nature is not destroyed in Orthodox Christian teaching. Okay, so where are we? How, do we? how do we think about this in terms of summary points and trying to wrap up here? Nature, grace, and scripture. The problem of nature lies within our soul. When we talk about it, when we use a word like nature or natural, the problem in a Christian idiom, in a theological, biblical idiom, is with our soul, our spirit, or our heart as manifested through our sin and its effect on our will. The spirit, soul, or heart need grace to be transformed and properly oriented toward God so that our bodies and minds and wills find eternal completion and perfection. It is our, what were you created for? <laughs> you were created to be with God forever. Forever. 
That's what grace does. It provides that to you. It is the gift, the new gift. You will be completed in what is now broken. Thanks be to God for the work of Christ Jesus because the second Adam makes possible by grace what the first Adam could not by nature. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was born from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born or carry the image of man in the dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So for Anglicanism, the tradition we are in, grace does not obliterate human nature, nor does it simply supply or perfect what is deficient in natural human reason or human willfulness. It's not simply a supplement to what's there. Sin is real and has had negative effects on our nature, including our reason and our will. Reason apart from grace has an awareness of God, but the heart or will in sin remains darkened. God's grace renews and reorients fallen sinful human nature through salvation. Therefore, I think we can say with biblical certainty and through the historical reasoning of the text that grace transforms our nature and it is necessary. And I'll go back now to close with some slides I put up last week. Why such a pedantic message? (laughs) Well, this is a news headline from 2012 in the Scientific American. Scientists probe human nature and discover we are good. Recent studies find our first impulses are selfless. Or, as I showed you last week, CNN. That's a real headline from 2018. It was breaking news. (laughs) They interrupted. Uh, (laughs) This just in. People are inherently good and nonviolent. 2020 hadn't happened yet, I suppose. I don't know. Um, And then, of course, I from the magazine Nature and an ongoing sort of struggle of our day, uh, the idea of two sexes as simplistic biologists now think there's a wider spectrum. Um, any conversation about human sexuality or, the nat- or human nature in relationship to sexuality falls first under the dynamic of nature and grace. It's not the starting point. It is a sub-point. So, I'll leave it there, and I'm open to take some questions, because apparently we're just finishing early around the clock today, so, um, or conversation. Yes, sir.
we don't we don't pray to grace. I mean, prayer of grace kind of being disembodied from the Godhead in the conversation. Yep. Uh, right. Uh, so where's the Spirit's role in this? The Holy Spirit's role in this. Uh, yep. Well, uh, I would go back to, um, I think that it is only by the Holy Spirit that we can understand what grace is actually doing to us. This is not a natural ability. So, I mean, Paul is, is clear that in, let's see if I can find it, that um, in the passage in Romans, here we go. In the passage from Romans, um, that the, that grace is is a gift, and that this gift is uh, is is given and transmitted by the third person of the Trinity. I mean, the, the scriptures are, scriptures are unequivocal on that. Whatever aha moment we might have is is it is blessedness. It is God reaching into us by His Spirit. Okay. Oh yes, ma'am. <laughs> Right. Completeness in that, and not a supplement, and and that will, of course, not be fully realized until our death and bodily resurrection. Yes, ma'am. I don't know if you're teaching next week, but Gil won't let me. Oh, no. <laughs> so. That's it, and that—that's where the, the 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 great sort of struggle comes, and and it hits us in the visceral way. Like, how do I live? How do I raise children? How do I make decisions? How, you know, God does God tell me who I'm going to marry? Does God tell me how to buy a card? You know, it's like, well, wait a minute. Uh, it's that in between the times and all the cultural and personal levels that it hits us at. That that's where we live, and 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 why we we. You know, I think we, we come under the word every week. We come into this teaching because that's the escort between the times, is the word and the sacrament. It's that, that this fellowship and all of its imperfection is, is the escort between this, this time and, uh, and the confusion that ensues. So I think you're exactly right. Yes, sir. Just throw Yes. It's good. In recreation, or in coming to faith, as 
Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and he gave the illustration of the wind and the spirit moving. So you have that. That's good. Well, and then Paul in his letter speaks of, and you had it up there, that we are spiritually discerned. I mean, not we're, Yeah. And, and that it's the Spirit again that, like he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit. By the Spirit. To, to the, the first question. It's simply not possible because Lordship is an acknowledgement of authority and power. It is an act of submission. And that submission will not come naturally. God's peace. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.